friends, welcome. It is so good to be back with you. If you don't know what's been going on in my story, I wasn't here last week, and I heard you guys behaved yourself so well for Reverend Camille and our boss, Reverend Melissa McKinnon, our district superintendent. I count myself grateful for that. I listened illegally by the rules of the AIDS life cycle ride to your service and joined you in worship uh, on my cell phone uh, and uh, couldn't stand to be away. And it is so good to be back with you in the family of faith. I rode a little over 500 miles this last week uh, as a part of a fundraising effort. It's only impressive till you know that I ride a recumbent, which my friends refer to as a Barca lounger with wheels on it. I sit way back. I'm super comfortable. No, it, it was a fantastic time. And I'm, I'm going to share a couple of learnings at the end of our time together. Uh, we're in the middle of our Family Matters series and talking about this idea that family shapes and informs who we are and helps us to know who we are. Um, and one of the things that you can do as a part of this time is if you have the Valencia UMC app, uh, or are looking for it. It's on the Apple Store and the Google Play Store. Uh, you can follow along with some notes uh, about what's going on in the life of our time together. And as a part of that, one of the things that you've probably seen over the last year here is when we kind of get into the middle and thick of sermon series, I like to just remind us of where we've been so that we're all on the same page. So this has been a series where we're talking about how family helps to shape us, our own family, but also the family of faith. We start in the first week talking about the idea that families help us to know who we are. They define us from a very early age. They, they rear us in traditions and experiences that help us to know who we are. They shape our identity for good or for bad. And that the church, the family of faith, has the opportunity to continue that work of formation and identity creation. For a Music Appreciation Sunday, we built on the theme of families celebrate together. That we do the good work of rejoicing and that we hoped that your families were a place where accomplishments could be celebrated, uh, but it was also a place and a time where you could be held tenderly uh, when you came up short or when you failed or when you just needed love, that that's an opportunity for the work of the church as well. We talked about the idea that our families, and indeed this church, is not a, a nesting environment. Our families send us out. Yes, we are equipped. Yes, we are nurtured and loved. But we are sent out into the world, sometimes as fully functioning human beings and adults, other times with still some work to do. But nonetheless, we are sent out into the world with a mission and a purpose. And then last week with the story of Mary and Martha, we talked about the idea that families can struggle Talked a little bit about sibling rivalry. Uh, my folks, Tom and Marilyn Maddock from Vegas, were with us the whole ride this last week. They were here at the 9 o'clock service. They're now on their way back to Vegas to see their dog, which they love more than me. Um, but they were here at the first service, and I joked, they will tell you that when it comes to the topic of sibling rivalry, I was the perfect oldest child. Firstborn son, I was so good to my brother and my sisters. I was never the source of conflict that y'all heard about last week in worship. It, right. And today we talk about this idea of growing and changing. That our families are something that by their very nature shift and evolve over time and in sudden moments. There are monumental places where our families have shifted and then sometimes families just change and grow and adapt to crises and to needs slowly over time. I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking that family can't change. Because there's a lot of talk in media and political arenas about family values and what it means to be a family. And the simple truth is, is that within the context of the church, in the context of Western society, in the context of our direct experience together, families have been shifting time and time again in our expectations. We see it first in our own bodies. 
It's just a truth that our bodies are shifting over time. Our capacity, our wherewithal for things change with the time that moves forward. I would live over 500 miles last week. I could not have done that as a toddler. My body had to grow and adapt in a way with some training to be able to accomplish that. And in the same way, families continue to take on new layers, new identities, and they shift. And the simple truth is, is that your family of origin, the family you grew up in, probably like mine, went through some changes. And each one of those changes is a snapshot of a particular period in time. And so if you took the uh, 47-year film reel of my life and you chopped it up into segments and you said, what does family look like? for Andy in those places, and you just took snapshots of the moment, you'd see what I mean. Because there was a blessed time when it was just my parents and me, and then my brother was born. And we added on a new relationship of sibling, and then a sister. And then the snapshot moves forward, and my birth parents uh, divorced amicably. And we saw through new marriages and new opportunities, blended families and new siblings added whose love and relationship with our family was an essential part of knowing who we were, where the lines began to blur. And then that generation of kids in the snapshot of my family started having spouses and kids of their own. And you begin to see these tremendous shifts. And these shifts often involve changes in identity. There was a time where my dad was a dad, and now he is a grandpa. For some of you, it was a shift from being a grandfather to a great-grandfather or grandmother. For some of you, it was a shift in identity to being married and then divorced and single again. For some, it was to be married and then to be widowed or a widower. It is to be a parent and perhaps to lose a child. There are shifts in identity in the snapshots of our family story. The only thing that's been consistent about my understanding of family is that it's been evolving and changing over time particularly as I started rearing a family of my own. And the vision and hope that I had for what Maddie and Jackson would be and who they have grown into in faith and fullness in life and the ways that those maybe early expectations don't match the present realities and yet they are all snapshots of a family that's grown and adapted and changed but has been rooted in love. Let's take a look at how that works out in our scripture this morning. It comes this story that we have from the Gospel of John. Jesus providing a new commandment, a great commandment for his disciples. And it reads in this way. My command is this. Love one another, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know the master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And so that whatever you ask in my name, the father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. Love one another. The word of God for the very people of God. And so we say thanks be to God. 
This is an instruction, a hope, and a possibility for us. Love one another. There is a deep hope in that. An invitation to raise our eyes and to see ourselves and the world in a new way in the words of Jesus. We have so many songs about how we teach love to one another and how the world will know us in love, about what it will mean to be a people who care for the burdens of one another. But what is deep and profound in this particular teaching is you have a Christ who looks into the eyes of his followers, his disciples, those whom he has called as a rabbi, those whom he has sent out to do the work of the blossoming church in prayer and in casting out demons. He looks at them and says, your identity has changed. You are no longer my servants. You're no longer pawns on the great board of religiosity. You are my friends. You're not just those that I have to do my will. You are those who know the very will of God and you are kin to me. You are close to my heart and therefore close to the heart of God. Their vision for their self-identity goes from this top-down hierarchy of spiritual and social power dynamics a Jesus who is above and them below to saying we are the family of faith and together we will make manifest the kingdom of God. That's the work of the church. That's who we're called to be. Not to see one another as greater than or less than, but as kin to and doing the work of love that God has called us to. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And when I chose you, I chose you to bear fruit. Now, I'm not a gardener, so I need this reminder every time this kind of story comes up. It seems to me that if the tree's job is to bear fruit, it ought to do its job well. But that's only accomplished in a right and healthy environment for the tree to do what it does naturally. To give the fruit. There comes no point by force, by beating into submission, by raised voices from me. I never once in my life get to say, bear fruit now, tree, and have that tree just squeeze out the fruit I need. Rather, we are called to bear fruit that lasts, because that is who we are when we find ourselves in a loving, nurturing, fertilizing environment of faith hope and possibility, we are chosen to be fruit-bearing. Not out of our standards of meeting the status quo as servants of some great master, but as friends to the founder of faith. If we knew, and we live now, the new commandment that was given, love one another as I have loved you, it would change our perspective on those we see, on those we meet, on those we know, on those we share the pew with, and on those we ought to share the pew with. If we are a people who see through the lens of love first and realize that we are not in a hierarchy of faith, that we have not discovered something that we can hold close to our chest because there are those out there who aren't high enough yet, who aren't status enough yet, who aren't good enough yet to know what we've got going on in here, but we begin to see each other. 
we begin to hold each other. We begin to love one another. That's how the early church did it. And they had to wrestle with the dynamic. We get so caught up in how to love the people who sometimes we feel are unlovable in our practice. Be out of life circumstance, poor choice, sinful patterns, who they love, who they are. That we forget that the struggles of the early church were rooted in very similar dynamics. You expect me to love who is the question that the early church starts asking right away. Because for Jewish Christians, they leaned into a messianic hope that Jesus was there for them. And yet here was Jesus calling the sinner friend, eating with the broken, healing those who maybe didn't deserve it, and offering a grace and a wisdom to them that they were to extend to the Gentile world. Even the Romans who were oppressing them and seemed to hate them. The early church had the burden of proof and the burden of struggle upon their shoulders to say, you expect us to love? How can we do that in loving them? But look how it plays out. First John chapter 4 talks about love. First in verse 7, no one has ever seen God. Now this isn't proof texting. Right? This isn't dragging out the Old Testament and saying, now wait a minute, Adam and Eve in the garden saw God and Moses saw the back of God. What point are you trying to make here? This is kin work. This is looking at your family and saying, have you seen God? Because I've seen signs of God. I've seen signs of God's hope, but I can't say that I've seen God. And so the affirmation is, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and God's love is made complete in us. And this love is not something that is erotic. It is not something that is filial or friendship-based. This is agape love. This is the fullness of love. God's perfect love is made complete in you and me if we love one another. Because we haven't seen God. But we can see those we need to love. 1 John continues in this way. It says, we love because God first loved us, because Christ first loved us. Whoever claims to love God yet hates his brother or sister is a liar. There's tension there. Hear it. Whoever says they love God, but hates their brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot possibly love a God whom they have not seen. And he's given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and their sister. To take up the mantle of Christian, the identity as a friend of Jesus and a follower of Christ, is to realize and appreciate that we are called, we are equipped, we are created to be a people where love is made manifest. Whereas you see on the screen, love will be made known in and through us. There's no two ways about it. Our gospel and our New Testament is clear. It's the manifestation of who we are to be in the practice of and discipline of loving the world that surrounds us. And the challenge is, is for those times where we cannot see God in others, we need to learn to love the brothers and sisters that we can see and to realize the places where we are putting on blinders and not seeing some of our brothers and sisters. That's how the family grows. 
That's how the family grows. And every family dynamic about adding new layers to the family, be it new generations of children, new spouses to your own progeny, whatever the case might be, there might be layers to this where you feel like they have found the perfect spouse or they have found the wrong one. Whatever the case might be, there always comes that moment of discernment and families grow when we begin to see the people who are at hand. And church, there are people at hand who desperately need to know the manifestations of this love, of this possibility, for they have heard too long that sense of you are not welcome here, you are not known here. When Camille and I accepted the call over a year ago to come and be the pastors here at this church, it was rooted in the principles that you hold to be true. To know that this was going to be a place where families come in all shapes and sizes, where stories matter, where God is made real because scriptures still have a story for us today where all means all and that we are equipped to come to this place with our baggage and our stories and know that we are all here to be a family of faith who is doing the work of here for good. That's the power of what we do. Sometimes the growth of families is uncomfortable, sometimes it's incremental, sometimes it's monumental. Whatever the case might be, the shifts in who we are, in who we love, our metric does not change. We are called and equipped to change our world through the power of love that is made real because we have been loved first. And for everyone who would ever say, I don't know that I could love somebody like that. And fill in your fill in the blank. I've had times in my life where I've known, I don't know that someone can love someone like me. Certainly not a God who is interested in wholeness, in grace, in capacity, in wisdom, in faith. Because I came up so short in all those places, how would a God like that love somebody like me? And yet the church has grown because it is consistently and just with an obsession made a place for those who are imperfect in the shadow of the love and grace of a perfect God. I want to say just a couple of thoughts at the end here about my ride and how it lives into this identity of being the family of faith. Um, so the AIDS life cycle is in its 29th year started as a response to the HIV and AIDS uh, crisis 40 years ago, uh, and it's a way to raise funds and awareness to the needs of those suffering with HIV and AIDS. Yes, for those who suffered within uh, those who were uh, on the outsides, uh, those who were part of the LGBT community early on, yes, absolutely those, but also those like folks from this church who shared, yeah, my brother died of AIDS. He was a hemophiliac and needed blood treatment, and he passed away as well. It's a ride that has served as a witness to the world of the continued need to address the health needs of those who are most vulnerable. You've heard me say before, I have a commitment to health equity and to access to resources and this sense by which we need to love our neighbors into the fullness of life and the fullness of health. This is the second year I've done the AIDS life cycle ride. It's a ride from Daly City, Cal Palace up in San Francisco down to this year, the beach at Santa Monica. This year we had 1,454 riders. That's down about 900 from a year ago, and I'm not actually sure why. It is a more intimate ride. 
There were 560 volunteers who helped the whole week make that happen. And, and there were people beyond that who just came out of the front of their house to cheer us on. My own folks who rented rooms and drove down the route to encourage and to support. My dad changed somewhere north of 100 tires this last week just to be of help to people in a time of need. And together, that small group of about 2,000 people raised over $11.7 million for those in need. Goes directly to support the San Francisco AIDS Foundation and the LA LGBT Center. And because of our corporate sponsors, those who come to the table to meet the larger needs, all of that money goes directly to support client services and those who are in need and their most vulnerable. I can say with some hope and possibility that the resources that you were a part of sharing, that I raised, are a part of meeting the direct need of people who need it the most. We have a team of Methodists that have done this ride for the second year in a row. We're called the Circuit Riders in honor of our uh, rich history uh, of pastors on horseback sharing the Word of God. Well, we're sharing a message of love and peace with the community uh, as a part of that time. Last year, we had five in our team. Um, uh, one of them went and got elected bishop, uh, and another got busy. And, and so we, uh, I, I came to the table this year, and they said, Andy, you need to be the captain of this year's team. And I said, great. How many sign-ups do we have? And they said, Three, you included. Yes! The three of us, myself, a lay member of the Simi Valley United Methodist Church, Mark Whitman, who's been my writing partner for north of 13 years now, uh, and a lay member of our annual conference, Don Carlisle, whose wife, Reverend Lee Carlisle, is a retired elder from our annual conference with the three Methodist writers in the ride this year. Um, all of us, cis, white, straight males, uh, married, uh, for long periods of time, we were definitely the minority, but it was our passion and our work and our gift to be able to raise more than $20,000 between the three of us to help that work as well. Some lessons I learned. First is that everybody's on their own ride. We started from the same place. We all finished at the same place. Some of us needed help to get there, and on day three, I quit with about 35 miles to go because I was suffering from hypothermia. I put my bike on the back of a truck, I got into my dad's support vehicle, and I said, I'm good for today. I got 25 in, that's going to be plenty. We all started at the same spot, we all ended at the same spot, but how we got there differed from rider to rider and body to body. I joked last week, you were, or two weeks ago, the poses, this is the body of an endurance athlete. Well, the simple truth is it is. I wasn't the oldest person there. The oldest person there was an 84-year-old rider. I wasn't the youngest person there. The youngest person there had just turned 18 and qualified to ride in the ride, and he signed up to go right away. I wasn't the heaviest person by far. I was not the fittest, and that surprised me. <laughs> there are tremendous athletes. There are tremendous athletes. When I stopped for lunch on the fourth day, just oh, probably about 11 o'clock, I was nowhere near halfway being done. And the lunch person said, yeah, there are apparently already four people who are at camp who finished their ride for the day. There are some fit people out there. We're all on our own ride. We start at the same place and we end at the same place, but how we get there will be different and our capacity to do it will be different. The thing that surprised me is that for everybody who was so much fitter or had a better story to tell to me that I was inspired by, there would be people who say, it really inspires me that you're here, that you're the kind of pastor who cares about my community and my people. I love that about that experience. For me, it was a chance for the inner child to have some sense of the experience of the divine, 
There might be moments in your life where you need to remember where you were and what your inner child used to enjoy. When I used to ride my bike, I never had to ask how far was I going to go, how many calories do I need to consume, what do I need to, you know, how much sunscreen do I need to wear, how much lycra do I need to have on. I just got on my bike and I went. And there were moments in the AIDS ride where the inner child is just made real and manifest, where you see people's hopes and longing, laughter and joy, where you get the chance to hold the inner child of someone in the midst of their grief, a mother who's lost a son, a man who's lost a partner. It's a chance for that inner child to be made real. The third thing I've learned but know uh, on this ride was able to articulate was a sense of why. The story that reminded me of that is on the fourth day, my dad, who they, my dad and stepmom are celebrities on the course. They, they, you know, stop along the route. They ring cowbells. They ring cowbells at the 9 o'clock service. Um, and uh, their pictures are on the ALC website now. I, they, they get around. Um, but what is clear is they are not ride staff personnel. They don't have the credentials. They don't have all the things on their cars that let them get into special places or do special things. They're just there. They show up because they love and so a writer stopped and asked my dad, why do you do this? Why are you here? He said, well, my son's a pastor in the Methodist church, and he's got a huge heart for this work, and we love him, and he loves you all, and we love you all, and so we're here. And that writer said, that is so awesome. When did your son come out as gay to you? <laughs> and my dad just kind of stopped and went, well, he, he didn't. That's not why he's here. He, he loves this community in spite of, despite that shortcoming. And that conversation kind of generated this sense within me is that if we wait to care for people, when their story, their struggle, their dynamic, their affliction, their lifestyle directly impacts us, we've missed the ball. It's no different than saying to your physician, I only want you to treat illnesses that you've had. get to love people where they are. And that was the work of that ride for me. Final thought. It was the kingdom of God made manifest for me. Where all are welcome and all are cared for. I will confess that there was an angry part of Andy early on in my life that read one of my favorite texts, the 23rd Psalm, the wrong way. That text ends with, and you will prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. And there was a time in my life where I imagined that I would get a rich buffet, a great table, and out there would be all the people who did me wrong, and I'd get to eat in front of them. It took some growing and a grace-filled and generous and faithful God to help me come to the point to realize where it is not about that. No, it is a table where the enemy sits across from you. There are not smoking and non-smoking sections in heaven. There is one family where all are welcomed, cared for, looked out for, given strength for, offered encouragement, celebration, accomplishments acknowledged. That's the work of the kingdom of God when we all come together. And so one final story. This is day, th nope, it's day two. Uh, longest day we had, 109 miles. We were riding through farm country. And picture, if you will, middle of nowhere farm country, been passed by trucks all day. I am ahead of my riding partner, Mark, who is also on a recumbent. 
Mark is riding along. Ford, Ford F-150 pickup truck pulls up next to Mark, rolls down the windows. Pulls up next to me. Pulls ahead of me and pulls off to the side of the road. Swings back out, pulls up next to Mark. Pulls up next to me and then speeds off. One of the riders behind us, one of those fit guys, right, on his road bike, comes up to me at the stop sign. Are you okay? Yeah. Do you need me to call the police? No. Why? I saw that guy. We do not tolerate harassment on the ride. And I, we will call the police. I, mean, I was ready to throw down. I saw how that guy was treating you. I hope that you're okay. And I realized what he was talking about. I said, no, that was, that was my dad. <laughs> he, he was just checking in before he went to the air-conditioned hotel for the night to make sure we were okay. We're fine. But that sense that he had this idea that I don't need to know your story to know you're sacred and I want to protect you. I don't need to know the full story of what had happened to know that I'm in the fight with you. That's what the kingdom of God looks like to me. Families grow and families change. Families evolve by God's grace, love, and mystery. And so we give a good God good thanks. Let's pray.